1: by Dr. Rupi Odjula, packed with a hundred delicious, easy recipes, plus lots of lifestyle tips and information. Available in all goods bookshops. Take your first steps towards optimum health today. Welcome to The Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where I'll be discussing the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. Today, I've got the absolute pleasure of inviting a really good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Ian Panja, who is a general practitioner, a super generalist, and he's really on a mission to uh, essentially heighten people's awareness of just why generalism is so, so important. He's a lifestyle medicine enthusiast. He's also co-founder of Loeb Medical, and we're here to talk about eating uh, for our mind and for our brains with specific regard to neurodegenerative disease. And like the first time I, I've heard Oyan um, was on TV because he's previously been on TV. He used to do something called Street Doctor. Um, but he has a, a, a very nice way about him, the way he speaks on the radio. And you're going to hear his dulcet tones. And honestly, <laughs> they're so <laughs> relaxing. <laughs>
0: Like the pressure is on now, <laughs> <The coughs> just pressure relax, is on.
1: just relax and listen to him, He's. Uh, I, I'm I'm. very very pleased uh, to have him on the pod today as you can tell and um, yeah we're going to be giving you some nuggets and at the end we're going to round up with some tips to eat for brain health and we're going to explain exactly what we me mean, uh, do you want to just give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself and just how busy you are as well because you're a full time GP. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's a tough gig, actually, and um,
0: I think people realise this because although the papers would make out that we earn millions of pounds a year, no one wants to do it anymore, <laughs> yeah. and there's a good reason for that, and that is that you can never turn anyone away, it is for all comers, and the stuff that comes through a GP's door, not just patients, but also the amount of wraparound work around it which is demeaningly called paperwork, which makes it sound very unimportant, but it's very important stuff. I mean, I, and I said to a friend the other day, I often get 100 letters to read a day, yes. 100 letters. And I start that at seven o'clock at night at the end of my day of, of seeing patients. I don't know how long it takes you to read yeah. 100 letters that all have an action where you have to concentrate. And if you don't concentrate, you start dropping balls and things go wrong but i still love the job it's it's in my dna and as you said earlier on super generalism it's a sort of a made-up word but i think you need more and more people in today's society to join up the dots and connect make connections in order to keep people healthy we're losing that sense of global overview as the world moves further and further into specialisation. So, yeah, my my, my job is is full on, but I love it. And as I said to you off air a minute ago, once a week, I think, actually you know what I could could easily go and do something else but but, uh, it's like Groundhog Day and um, at the moment I'm enjoying it
1: You know what the patients keep you going don't they and you know you have those cases where you've actually made a massive difference and that's what reminds you why you're looking through all these letters at 7pm and the variety is just insane like one minute you're trying to look after someone's mother who's disabled and you need to organise a wheelchair or someone else who's worried that they've got cancer and then at the same time you're being pestered about doing some paperwork that is important to that person, but it's really not a priority.
0: Exactly right. And and I think the other thing is, is that a lot of people don't know what GPs do. From where I'm sitting, you, you get the feeling that everyone just comes to the doctor... All the time, yeah. but actually, a lot of people don't. And if you don't need primary care services or access to the GP very often, you don't really know what it is that we do. I think a lot of people think we're just machines that refer people on. Yes. That's yeah. not true. Mm. Only 10% of people get referred on. 90% we manage ourselves. Mm. And we get very good at holding, in inverted commas, you know, holding patients who are depressed or effectively you're doing lots of different jobs, you know, as well as you can. So you're part counsellor, you're part physio part dietitian. dare i say it although you know we're not because we're we're not experts in those fields but you're doing what you can whilst they're waiting for a referral or or occasionally you you know as you said you you put some interventions in and actually that person gets a lot better and I'm seeing that more and more and that's why I'm such a champion of this um, this super generalist approach.
1: Exactly, and I think that 90% figure is is something that resonates very well with this podcast that we're doing today because brain health and preventing dementia is something that a lot of people don't realise you can actually do using lifestyle approaches and I want to make sure that this isn't in the realm of experts, this isn't just something that only cutting edge researchers know about, this is something that we can introduce to our patients as general practitioners 100
0: you know and i think the brain you know in many ways is the master organ it sits above everything else and what we've learned in recent years is that when it comes to non-communicable disease so this is stuff that you don't catch from other people we're not talking about colds or tb or malaria this is stuff that arises from within Painful joints, headaches, memory loss—these are all symptoms that people come in with. Actually, what we're finding, and I know you know this very well, Rupi, is that all the interventions are very similar. You know, and if you look at ways of keeping your blood pressure under control, or keeping your brain health optimized, or preventing diabetes, actually the tools are the same. And if you do, if you work on one, um, you'll find that all the others get better. And I think that's the power of this. And I think. Not only should every clinician know a bit about this, but the public at large should know about this
1: and and we we need to increase awareness about it. Yeah, even though we're talking about brain health today, you'll notice there's lots of similarities and similar sorts of things that we will talk to patients about for their blood pressure or for cardiac health or for their diabetes. And that's a a really nice metaphor to just how interconnected we are. Yeah, I think interconnected is exactly the word.
0: I mean, it's interesting as well, because when you've got the patient in front of you, you're going from symptoms to you know it's almost like one of those things where you zoom in on you know if you had a magic camera and you zoomed in on their brain or their joints Mm -hmm. to the molecular level and i think this has been for lots of reasons partly because we're so punch drunk busy as doctors and partly because we've fallen into this medical model of quickly dealing with something efficiently that works and drugs can do that although they don't actually treat the underlying cause of a symptom but but if we take brain health for example um you know and you, you you actually let's go really deep so let's forget the person just for a second and what symptom they've come up come in with but if you take the actual cells in the brain the neuron they need three things they need glucose which is type of sugar mm-hmm. they need oxygen and they need stimulation those are the three things that effectively preserve brain health you know cut to cut a very long story yeah, yeah, short sure. but how do you, how do you get the person in front of you to improve those three things that's a good sort of starting point mm. in a way and of course it's through lifestyle so you know when, when I say glucose that doesn't mean you can just go and eat cakes <laughs> yeah. because it's uh, <laughs> glucose is a f- very specific type of sugar that the brain uses and actually if you eat cakes it will make the wrong type of sugar and and that will will, will be bad for the brain but but essentially it's to do with Making sure that you exercise more, making sure that you eat the right foods, and and the timing of meals, and also making sure that your brain is active and that you're stimulating the brain by doing lots of brain activities. Mm. So it's quite simple. I mean, that's a, a, a you know a long story cut short. But yes, that that's yes. the kind of way that I think doctors ought to be thinking. Yeah,
1: and I think that's a really nice framework to start off, like talking about all these different elements, because, you know, glucose, as you mentioned, that's a really important topic. And we talk about other things that can improve the oxygen levels to the brain, as well as uh, brain stimulation. I think a lot of people don't realise that stimulating the brain in different ways improves those connections, those synapses, the the different uh, neuron connections that we have. And, and the, the brain is actually quite plastic. It's quite mouldable.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And, and, you know, plasticity or neuroplasticity is the ability of your brain to handle stress in some ways, you know, whether that's biological stress or emotional stress so that the neurons don't get killed off because they're dying all the time. You know, as you and I are sitting here, uh, our brain cells are dying, but, but, but I'm also being stimulated as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, um, I know it sounds a morbid thought, but, but actually what stops them dying, what makes them die quicker? You know, if, if you, if you and I had a massive heated argument now that would kill off a lot more neurons than us having a nice chat. Um, and if, your blood, you know, because your blood pressure goes up, your cortisol level goes up during this episode, and that affects your blood sugar. Um, and, and while we're on the topic of blood sugar, actually, it's interesting to mention that someone who's diabetic is is actually several times more likely to have memory difficulties and some kind of neurodegenerative brain condition and that's not as a scare tactic
1: that's just to show how much how important sugar control is so, so you've had some experience with dementia patients and and utilizing some of these these concepts that we've just been talking about in in clinic right
0: Absolutely, yeah, and and it came from a trip that I made with Ronkin. He always comes up, doesn't he? Somewhere, yeah, <laughs> yeah he's, he's going to be come up a lot. <laughs> um, and uh, he's here, but he's not here. You know. Yeah, and um, so uh, he's so... going to come through the door. Hi, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> always yeah. late as well. Yeah, but um, yeah. so so we, we he and I went to California to spend some time with Professor Dale Bredson, who I, I know you're. You know you know his work, and and uh, and and Dale is an, actually a neurologist. So hardcore brain researcher who for many years had done studies on, on, on animal studies, really, looking at Alzheimer's. And for years, he thought he could come up with a drug that just cleaved the amyloid protein. So basically, just a, a quick recap, amyloid is a type of protein. So all neurodegenerative brain diseases, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's career and Alzheimer's disease. One feature they have in common is something called protein aggregation. So proteins build up in the brain. So in the case of Huntington's, it's the protein's called hunting tin. In Parkinson's disease, they're called Lewy bodies. And in Alzheimer's, they're called amyloid plaques, as we know. But you and I probably have some amyloid in our brains, but it's sat there not doing anything. And then suddenly there's a switch that activates it. And then the amyloid starts making these tangles called tau tangles. And that's when memory starts to decline quite quickly. So Dale, after all, you know, 30 years of research, came to the conclusion that Actually, he wasn't going to invent this drug and it wasn't going to cleave the amyloid protein in one part. But what he did discover was that actually, if you modified lifestyle factors, that not only can it prevent dementia, but it can reverse people that have already got the label of Alzheimer's. So this is the stuff of fantasy. I mean, when, you know, imagine someone rocking up saying, "Hey guys, I've, I found the cure for yeah, Alzheimer's." Yeah, I mean, exactly. you, you it's know, met
1: a lot of skepticism as well from traditional neurologists because they're like, "This is absolutely impossible." Like we've been studying this for decades and we haven't made this link, and we have all these other medications. It's quite revolutionary, isn't it? Very
0: much so, and and I think Dale. What he points out is the medication plays a role, but he he, he analogises it to, you know, a roof with 36 holes. If you plug one hole, it's not going to keep the rain out. You need to plug about 30 or so. And the drug plugs one of them or maybe two of them. As we were talking earlier... The, the lifestyle changes that he recommends are very similar to those for diabetes, for high blood pressure. And and what what I loved about his work, because it was it was all too much for us really, because we I think we went there and we were blown away by A his intellect and his passion, but B that the science is very technical at at that sort of top level that Dale operates on Um, and we needed to bring it back to the consulting room so we could actually help people, you know, I I say in the real world but you know what I mean, in in the 10 minute appointment world.
1: Exactly, yeah, that's like another hurdle that we have to deal with in the NHS, yeah.
0: But what was interesting about Dale's work, he, he classified these patients into groups, so type one of, you know, one type of person that he found that has Alzheimer's he called inflammatory, so this is a group of people who tend to be inflamed it might be they tend to typically be men who have gout or they have elevated markers in their blood for inflammation then type 2 he describes as trophic and trophic is a word that means growth and Often, this group are women, particularly after menopause, where there's a withdrawal of their sex hormones, and that sometimes accelerates memory loss, or or other other vitamins and minerals like B12, for example, that are lacking. The third group were, were called toxic. This is a very unusual group, and we don't we don't learn about this sort of stuff at med school. And these are people who either genetically or for some other reason cannot get rid of toxins very easily from their body. So, say I had a gene mutation that meant I couldn't, my liver wasn't working as well as yours and we sat in this room and it was full of mold. By the end of the day, I I may have a very bad headache and feel terrible because I'm not getting rid of the Being toxins. Able to. Yeah, exactly. Um so that was another group and the and the fourth group he he calls glycotoxic or sweet, which are the people who are diabetic. Mm. And often as you as you know and a lot of people listening to this will know that Alzheimer's is often called type three diabetes yes, yeah. because, and again, going back to the sugar control and how, you know, the brain becomes resistant to insulin. Mm. So, so, so I love that model. And I think that made it much easier for us to apply because you've got a starting point in terms of diet, exercise, brain stimulation, and going back to that thing at the very beginning yes, about yeah. the neuron, glucose, oxygen, stimulation, how are we going to get there? And mm. And that's, that's a great Starting point.
1: Yeah, me. I mean, he's he's absolutely fascinating. His work and his landmark paper, I think, that came out in two thousand fourteen, looking at a small group of patients with phenomenal results. Very simple lifestyle changes. It was getting them to meditate, exercise, uh, use some targeted supplementation, but mainly concentrating on food being a healthy, colourful, largely plant-based, almost Mediterranean-style diet. It's pretty phenomenal. The it, results. It it is really, and I
0: think you know, you know, the Dash diet, the diet there are lots of these diets around but they all predominantly there are some common messages in all of them and i think one of them is the power of whole foods and and avoiding refined and processed foods because that processing just does something in terms of increasing you know for example the way that you handle sugar we know that if you're eating fruit for example which has sugar in it because fruit contains fiber you're body handles it differently and it doesn't cause the insulin spikes that say a, a bar of candy might yeah. so that processed stuff is not good so whole foods is definitely one of them and also fats and 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 healthy fats so I'm, i don't want to get into an argument about fats because um, <laughs> yeah. you know it gets and i'm I, and i've got to stress you know i i'm not an expert on nutrition but th- this knowledge is out there and i think what i'm trying to get across is how do you, how do you apply stuff that you read to the person in front of you and and that is to do with starting with where they're at you know tell me what you eat every morning and every lunchtime and at dinner time and then you start with them there and then share the
1: science with them and tell them about how great omega3s are I think what you just quickly uh, told us there is, is actually something that I use in clinic quite a bit that 24 hour recall because straight away you have a snapshot of how this patient is generally eating what do you have a breakfast lunch genuine what do you drink and what do you snack on? Those are simple things that I do in clinic in 45 seconds you can get a really nice snapshot and then you can have a targeted approach like okay, well let's change your food so they're a little bit more whole or let's add, add a few more vegetables here and there you know you don't need a nutrition degree. to to make those changes and I think it's really important that GPs shouldn't be shy of making these very reasonable suggestions but obviously use registered dietitians nutritionists where appropriate
0: Absolutely and and I think I would love everyone to have access to a dietitian or a nutritionist but there isn't the facility or the resource Mm. and a physiotherapist and, and a dietitian and a general practitioner and a nurse and we can name any other type of specialty um, and any any other colleague. They all need to know a bit about what the other does. This is where I come down to this thing about generalism. I wouldn't expect a colleague who's a dietitian to be able to treat someone with sciatica, yeah, okay. but they have to know a, a little bit about it. And I think we're we're getting siloed off a bit in medicine where if you're not careful you just focus on what
1: you do and that doesn't help anyone yeah, it just repeats the, a lot of work yeah, yeah certainly not the generalist either because if we were no. just operating in silos then we wouldn't be prescribing antihypertensives or you know dealing with diabetes in clinic and that kind of stuff so we need to certainly extend our toolkit and uh, maybe have a bit more of a collaborative approach yeah
0: i think also the thing about diets is you
1: can find loads of information out there
0: knowing whether it's accurate is the challenge it's in some ways it's harder for healthcare professionals because we have a duty to make sure that whatever we're recommending is not hokum and I, i get people who come in who've had advice from their hairdresser sometimes it's really good advice i think oh my god they're on it where did they read that you know that's that's really good obviously that's informal advice but when you're giving advice as a healthcare professional you have a duty to make sure that it's accurate and one of my patients asked me recently about extra virgin olive oil. And, it, and as you know, Rupi, is someone who's, who's an expert in culinary medicine, the more you know, the less you know. And yes. There are loads of different types of extra virgin exactly. olive oil. It's a minefield, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But keeping it generalist, he said, look, why is it good for brain health? And it's a really good point because I, I can make a hypothesis, but it, it brought me actually to, to look at this study by a chap from the University of Philadelphia who did a study on mice called Dr. Domenico Partico in 2014 and what he found was that the group of mice that he gave olive oil to actually they were able to get rid of waste substances from their neurons a lot better so going back to that toxic group of Alzheimer's patients can you imagine that that one intervention possibly I'm not saying it definitely would but the science gives you a A nudge towards well hang on this might there might be some benefit here slightly different to omega-3 fatty acids for example which we get too many omega-6s these days because of commercial vegetable oils and
1: omega-3s historically when we were hunter-gatherers we used to get more of and we don't get enough of So, just, they... just for the listeners yeah. like omega-3 and omega-6 are a type of fatty acids that we find they're unsaturated and uh, we get them in things like nuts seeds uh, extra virgin olive oils and usually from, from vegetable sources uh, absolutely right yeah and, that and... balance is, you know so- sometimes when it's out of work it can lead to pro-inflammatory uh, results so omega-6 is slightly inflammatory and omega-3 is anti-inflammatory And we need both of them, but the balance needs to be addressed in Western cultures.
0: It's interesting when you mention omega-3, because most people will walk through you know, Morrisons or Sainsbury's down that aisle next to the pharmacy where there's all the sort of sun creams and stuff and they'll see supplements and one of them they'll sort of think omega-3, I sort of know that's meant to be quite good what's it yes, good for again, yeah, you know, yeah. how does it work why does it work and things like omega-3s you know, they're phospholipids in terms of what they are and what they effectively do is they supercharge your cell membranes so every cell in your body will absorb nutrients a little bit better if you have more omega-3s and as a result your levels of inflammation will go down so that's part of the science bit but I think it's all about keeping it simple and going back to the person opposite you like you said you start with where they're at what they're eating what their routine's like then you move into other things like sleep sleep is a huge thing not necessarily directly linked to diet but in terms of hunger and appetite and the signals that your brain is sending you it's a huge thing I'm sure you've had this you know when you sort of so if you drink alcohol, for example, the disruption it causes in your sleep and the amount of hunger it causes, sort of in the middle of the night, is is unbelievable. You know, and it it's one of those things where, um, you know, if you felt it, and when you mention it to someone, they kind of go, "Yeah, you are right." Actually, I, I sort of find I, I eat a lot more when I want to drink alcohol yes, yeah. at certain different times, and and this thing about timing of meals. So, one very simple tip is about making sure that you don't eat dinner too late, and if possible eating breakfast a little bit later than you do so getting all of your meals into a window of around about 10 hours and then having an overnight fast of 11 to 12 hours why is that beneficial okay well two reasons firstly if you go to bed with a full stomach one you're not going to digest your food very well because you're it's just going to sit there and it takes about three hours for your stomach to churn things over so your digestive enzymes won't work very well secondly All food has some sugar in it and you go to bed with a a bit of a spike in sugar and then your pancreas, your body, actually churns out something called insulin. And insulin, what it does is it keeps your sugar levels down. But insulin is also a steroid hormone. Now, anyone listening to this will know that steroids, you know, in, in popular culture, you know, bodybuilders abuse steroids to get big muscles. And actually, insulin does exactly that. It's anabolic. It sort of lays down fat. It makes cells overgrow. And if you're getting too much insulin hanging around in your system, that is really bad for you. So it's not the sugar necessarily that is bad for us. It's what your body does afterwards. It's this insulin spike. And if you go to bed with that and wake up and have breakfast early, you're just increasing the sugar and the insulin again. And that will make you put on weight. It will drive inflammation and all those things that we said lead to these diseases like diabetes or alzheimers so so that's something i i tend to try and get my patients to do whatever they've come in with when it when it's non communicable it's a quick win it's it's if you do it 5 days a week you know, you're doing well. You don't have to stick to it at weekends because, you know, no one's superhuman. Yeah, but you Yeah, there's some really, really interesting
1: thing. research looking at that actually like uh, having that defined period of window, not changing calorific intake, sometimes not even changing what you eat, just that very simple means of of changing when you eat and the effect on inflammation. So you mentioned a couple of things there with the, the effect on insulin. I suppose eating later on can also affect your hormones that can affect your circadian rhythm, can affect your melatonin. And not to sound like this is um, a scam about eating, but when you eat, your body is put into a slightly more inflammatory state where you need to have that inflammatory state to essentially metabolise and process your food. So if you're doing that over an extended period throughout the day, you're not really giving your body a chance to rest and to essentially operate on its normal sort of homeostatic mechanisms. So that's why I think it can be a very interesting therapeutic strategy yeah absolutely and again bringing it back to
0: the person one, one of the things i notice is and i often start like that where they go oh no I, I can't eat that i can't eat this you know um okay well eat exactly what you're eating just change the timing of your meals yeah, yeah. but often they'll come back after six or eight weeks and they go do you know what i feel a lot better <laughs> already and they, <laughs> yeah. they're still eating it, not great food exactly, um, yeah. um, and at that point they're much more likely to start eating something that is better for them because they felt better just by this one intervention so then they start entertaining the idea of possibly buying some cabbage or something that they, they that isn't in there or
1: broccoli in the morning
0: broccoli in the morning yeah 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 our <laughs> our oh, <mate>, oh, buddy <laughs> wrong does that doesn't he yeah yeah i've uh, and i've you know and i and or, or sometimes it's just the making something more appealing like one of my patients just he loves broccoli but as long as he's got it with some garlic and some chili probably a bit like myself you know yeah, because it yeah. just makes
1: it slightly more palatable but absolutely yeah you gotta you, you can't just have broccoli on its own you gotta have it with spices i have it with mustard seeds there's even broccoli in my book for breakfast as well oh, like yeah, with chestnut yeah, yeah. and stuff
0: <laughs> no it's great stuff so 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 that's 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 sort of you know what happens at, at the coal face and then you can take it as far as you want really because there's a whole other thing, you know, so in the middle of all this is the science, you know, about inflammation, what leads to inflammation. I mean, what leads to inflammation, one of the things I'd like to mention is a a food group, if we're keeping it sort of food-focused, are berries and nuts, you know. So berries are really interesting in that polyphenols, you know, is, is a type of compound, and berries are very rich in these, and they are split into something called flavonoids. I don't want to get too scientific. The great thing about these is a, a lot of foods don't make it to the large intestine um in any way shape or form and berries 60 percent of them get absorbed in your small intestine but a lot of the rest of it make it to the large intestine where it directly interacts with your gut flora you know and this is one of so it works in lots of ways they're antioxidants and and again i'll come back to what that means in a minute because i think that's a word that everyone hears banded
1: around a lot isn't it yeah, yeah. you know a
0: bit like omega-3 it's like i yeah, yeah. well, know they're meant to be good for me but um but but also they have a direct effect on gut flora and increasing good levels of bacteria and that is the food for our immune system most of which is in the gut. They they're also antioxidants and what are antioxidants? I think this is quite important. This because one of the big drivers, if you look at Non-communicable disease, and I'm hoping people, after listening to me drone on about this, might go and look up something like inflammation and what causes it. One of the and big n- drivers...
1: non-communicable diseases, just to clarify, are things like diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, those that are, you don't uh, pass from one person to another. Uh, although there is some interesting research about epigenetics and how you can actually pass it to your children, but we won't go into that. No, no, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: I, but, but, but I mean, you're right. the things that you don't catch from other people. They're, um, you know, they're not, they're not. Air airborne they're not mm-hmm. infectious or mm-hmm. contagious diseases these are n- not communicable so mm-hmm. they so but but uh but i mean g- going back to antioxidants one of the reasons i'm men- mentioning them is that one of the drivers for inflammation is something called oxidative stress and oxidative stress is if you if you speak to anyone in the world of preventive medicine they'll go on and on about this going oh that's the, just the, <laughs> the big evil thing everything is bad because of oxidative stress what oxidative stress is is essentially you get these molecules floating around the blood called free radicals which contain oxygen and they cause a lot of damage and a lot of inflammation and what they do is they in order to for them to survive and cause havoc they have to steal electrons from other cells in your body and and you know like they steal things like lipids you know fats and proteins but antioxidants what they do is they actually give the free radical this electron but the antioxidant itself stays nice and stable so just to clarify this if you eat berries which contain antioxidants and you've got these nasty free radicals floating around that cause inflammation your berries will sort of give the free radical what it's looking for it's weird i've got very visual memory so free radical makes me think of like some guy with this sort of (laughs) sitting sitting outside trago square you know sort of but no you know like just think of it how you will but you know free free radical is basically not good for you and, and drives inflammation and one very simple thing that will you know put a lid on that is if you up your antioxidant intake and actually you know legumes and berries and nuts they they are very rich in those so Absolutely. a handful of those as long as you're not allergic obviously yeah. is pretty essential i'd yeah, say or almost in terms of food as medicine i've got to stress i'm not a dietitian <laughs> i'm not a nutritionist but you know this is stuff that the science is obvious and and actually the university of east anglia do a lot of studies in this particular
1: area um, which is why i become interested
0: in it. and um,
1: Definitely. You and know. I think the Mind Diet specifically, rec- which is the uh, mixture of the Mediterranean dash diet, they specifically recommend berries because th- there is so much evidence about it. But um, first of all, like w- what you said about the freezer, I think freezer berries are fantastic. They're really cheap. You can mix them into smoothies and porridge and that kind of stuff. So it's actually quite accessible to a lot of people. But also you can get these antioxidant rich foods with all the different polyphenols from really easily accessible foods up and down the country, all over across our grocery aisle uh, shelves so beets and uh, tomatoes and all the different sorts of greens in particular from the brassica family so you know getting all these uh, amazing isoflavones that you get from broccoli and cabbage and it's it's, it's quite amazing the science behind all these different items and when you lump them together yeah. you're really looking at a medicinal sort of food package there yeah
0: absolutely and people don't think of it like that and, and i don't want them to think of it like that in a way because i think it's you can get too hung up. Very and, prescriptive, uh, exactly. Hey, yeah. You know, mm. and people people eat food because f- you know, and that and your uh, you know, your world is is doing great things there. I think in terms of what it means to eat and eat together and enjoying food, and and we've forgotten that a bit in exactly, the modern world because yeah. we're always in a rush, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Of, yeah. Um, but um, but but yeah. So pe- people don't eat macros and micros; they eat food. You know, it's and 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 I think keeping things simple and trying to you know. eat more whole foods just even that one thing is a start you know timing of meals we can go further into other interventions like dale going back to dale's work you know there's a lot of stuff on supplementation but actually again if you look at a lot of the supplements like turmeric for example again very topical it has to be in the right form it has to be activated but turmeric actually binds amyloid and stops it being able to multiply so that's one of the reasons it helps people with alzheimer's and i think it's really confusing for 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 me actually even uh, but but also members of the public because if you pick up a paper there'll be some story which has it's all well intentioned like did you know that you know india has a very low rate of alzheimer's and we think it might be because they eat a lot of curries with with turmeric might be but but how does that help the guy in front of you that's what it's about and i think there are some basic principles so whole food diet changing timing of meals definitely keeping your brain active going back to that neuron you know stimulation is really important yeah
1: let's talk a bit about that actually stimulating the neurons in different ways in which we can uh, improve that sort of plasticity
0: absolutely yeah so plasticity you know again just to recap is is more about the resilience of your neurons in a way how how robust they are and how likely they are to, to survive under hard times whether that's From drinking too much alcohol or stress or whatever, and we know from you know there's an organisation in the states called Brain HQ that make a program for cognitive stimulation, and they've now got really quite compelling data that cognitive stimulation improves memory even in people with cognitive decline, and the the key is a, a variety of tasks if you if you don't use it you lose it and, and the brain is a muscle in in some you know not, not to sort of this is not being this is not science talk this yeah, is sort yeah. of you know analogies, analogies, analogies yeah. but but it really is you know you can't expect to go to the gym and have big biceps by going to the gym once and it's the same with the brain the more you do something the better you'll get at it and and and, and a lot of it's to do with physical stuff as well so one of the things i when I do my physical examination, I get people to toe the line with their eyes closed. Okay. Yeah. Um, because that And and, and I, I often get them to stand on one leg and do some cerebellar tests. So this is mm. the hindbrain, the bit of the brain right at the bottom. It's amazing how many people can't do it. And they're really shocked. And you can see them thinking, hold on a minute, I, I'm, I can definitely do this. And they try it again and they can't do it. It's not to scare them. It's just to give me a rough idea of what's going on in terms of their neurological status you know are there any early signs of the fact that they might be very 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 early signs that their brain could be working a bit better not not that they've got any disease necessarily at this stage but they've usually come in because they're worried about their memory or because they're feeling some they've got some sort of brain symptom what i'll get them to do is i'll get them to stimulate their vagus nerve which um, connects the gut and the brain and a lot's been written about vagus nerve stimulation as a therapy for various conditions and so so this is the nerve that calms you down the one that's activated when you're doing yoga or meditating and it seems to play quite a key role in the gut brain link and and so It works it's a two-way street so if you if you work the vagus by meditating it can improve your gut health and if you work on your gut it can improve your brain health and it's it's almost like a highway between the two so i give them some vagal exercises singing is a really good one um
1: just to talk about hmm. singing actually there was this paper that came out they examined the brains of um, nuns uh who had classic features of alzheimer's on their brain but they didn't they have any symptoms. symptoms. I saw that. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, and they looked at their lifestyle, and obviously they had a very simple lifestyle. But they sang a lot as well, and that was one of the activities that they had to stimulate their brain. Yeah. And obviously, you can't put two and two together. But it is quite interesting that we know about this stuff about um, singing and uh, neuroplasticity, yeah. and the fact that these nuns didn't have symptoms of Alzheimer's despite having classic features on their brain.
0: Absolutely, and and it can be very very simple it doesn't have to be singing so I saw a lady recently who didn't really get on with the online type of cognitive training so there are lots of programs where you can go online and they give you tests that that you speed up at the more you do but she really didn't connect with that and I realized that actually I'd probably made a mistake in that I hadn't realized that that wouldn't work for her And, and then I had to ask her about things that she liked and it turned out that she really liked reading and so what we decided in the end was that perhaps she should read aloud and her husband should read aloud you know so so he, she reads aloud for a book that he wants to gotcha. you know that yeah. that type of thing and 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 you know she she's doing quite well with that and, and and starting starting up doing crosswords was something mm. that she really used to enjoy but over the last few years because they've become too difficult she's just not bothered doing them and i think that that's sad you know when, yeah. when people start adapting their lifestyle and they're not even sure why so so you know the benefits can be huge because just by doing the basic things we've talked about you know forget the, the you know the, the mega doses of supplements and all that yes, sort of stuff yeah, you know yeah, most yeah. of most people don't don't need that mm. but just by doing the basics you know you will notice that you feel a lot better i mean i I know on a personal level my memory is definitely better now than it was five years ago b- because my I've, I've changed a few things in my diet and mm. um and i i do remember the time it really came up for me was when i was going into the BBC and I just couldn't remember my scripts and I I kept having to read these lines and I was thinking my co-presenter can get them and I I can't what is going on and actually it was For me, it was just a very simple thing of just eating too much of the wrong stuff, and uh, you know, corrected it. So, so I felt the power of it
1: myself. And I find these these stimulating exercises can be almost a form of mindfulness as well, and that kind of feeds into the stress and that impact on the brain and what we're talking about cortisol levels and how that can affect inflammation, sugar. You know, it's it's quite interesting how interconnected even these exercises are in themselves. And I think mindfulness and and reducing stress is is a really interesting tactic for those having brain health issues or trying to. uh, dementia going forward right yeah
0: oh completely i mean stress just to just to stress the point about stress <laughs> beyond blood sugar control and beyond any kind of injury to the brain like a stroke which prevents oxygen from getting to the brain stress is i would argue the third most important factor so it's right up there and the the problem with stress is it's not very measurable. It it is, you know, one of the big illnesses of our time, along with Alzheimer's, I think. It's one it's something that defines the era that we're living through. Who's not stressed, you know. But it's it's a big thing. And I and I, I do worry for future generations, they're not going to be able to just rock up and live a, f- a fairly normal life without actually thinking about how to minimise that. So so you're absolutely right. I think being mindful and and I, I, I one of the things I often get my patients to do is five minutes of nothing a day and they, they find it really hard because no one ever tells you to do that because it's always like right from, you know, like even now I'm thinking after this, I've got, you know, you go it, uh, you know <laughs> you I've got to go and pick Clearly. the kids up because it's a half day because <laughs> it's end of term or whatever but we're always planning ahead and that's not good. You've got to stop sometimes and it allows your brain to just calm down. You know, a bit like sleep is so important for brain regeneration. You know, as it leads know.
1: very nicely on to probably the last topic we we're going to talk about, which is sleep, right? It's, it's, it's essential for our brain health.
0: Yeah, you, you can last longer without water than you can without sleep. And, and again, it, it in my my days as a young junior doctor, it was a bit of a badge of honour. You know, I started on a Saturday morning and I went home on Monday night, yeah. had a 56-hour shift with about two hours sleep, you know, and they let us drive home. I mean, it was absolutely <laughs> unbelievable we were allowed to work in those conditions. But the impact it has on your health in terms of your blood sugar, your hormones, your mood, it's its not something you can do. And, and I I've, we've all done it when we were sort of in our early 20s. You sort of, you know, you, you kind of stay up all night and you're back at your desk at 8am you know and you can't do that anymore I mean yeah, I, I would yeah, just yeah. physically yeah. not you know not be able to function and and so sleep is underrated and it's probably in some ways more important than the food I'd say mm. honestly because yeah, yeah. It, it's such a th- it's such a given thing and, and because we're all so busy we don't prioritize it Like mm. you know I, I, I I've i done it myself you know I, I was I was looking at my phone in bed which is really <laughs> bad I mean <laughs> yeah. just the worst thing you can do yeah. but, you know and I didn't sleep well I was tossing and turning. I was fidgety. You know, I I remember thinking, I've got to be up in four hours' time, you know, and I've paid for it. And and, and maybe I would have got away with it. We didn't have smartphones 20 years ago, did we? But maybe I would have got away with it when I was younger. But certainly, you know, in my mid-40s, you know, it's one of these things that is sending the wrong signal to the brain at the wrong time, and that will screw up my hormones. If I Mm. kept doing it, my blood sugar control, my hormones would make me inflamed, and it would make me develop a non-communicable disease that that's the thing it's a sort of a process that that you know you can you can turn the clock back on it just by doing these things. Exactly.
1: And then from a holistic perspective, it's not just going to impact your brain health. It's going to affect your endocrine system. It's going to put you at higher risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, high inflammation. So we've talked a lot about inflammation, I think. It's uh, it's quite a difficult topic for a lot of people to understand because we live in this constant continuum of pro and anti-inflammation. Anti-inflammation is actually very necessary as part of our infection fighting system. But I think in modern life, we have this chronic low level of meta-inflammation that is over long periods of time culminates in non-communicable diseases like high blood pressure diabetes etc so it's um, yeah it's it's something that we need to probably readdress the balance amongst western populations in particular I think we talked the legs off brain health today yeah, 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 uh, <laughs> a pleasure chatting to Ian I mean he's an absolute wealth of knowledge and I've basically come up with a few things that I think you can try at home and they basically summarise essentially what we were chatting about. I'd always work with your practitioner every step to make sure your lifestyle changes are relevant and tailored to you. If you're on medication, it's really important to make sure you go through all these different points if you are thinking about any lifestyle changes, just to make sure that everything's personalised polyphenol rich food. So that's something that we find in a Mediterranean style of eating. So that's the greens, the yellows, the purples, all these different sorts of foods have anti-inflammatory properties in way of their polyphenols. So we're talking about broccoli, brassica vegetables, cauliflower, tomatoes, there's beets and berries. Obviously that's one thing that we did heighten on the use of spices is really important. So we talked about turmeric, which you can find in my book quite a bit. There's a uh, spice lime, cauliflower, and sweet potato baked with prawns, for example. But there are loads of other spices that you can use that all have those polyphenols and those anti-inflammatory effects. We're talking about things like sumac and clove and cinnamon. And they're fantastic. They add a wealth of aroma to your food as well defining your eating period. So eating in a rough 10 to 12-hour window can be effective at giving your body a rest and improving hormone control of your body as well. We didn't talk too much about exercise, but exercise has a powerful effect on our body in multiple different ways, including our brain health. It encourages production of certain hormones, one of which is BDNF, that's brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and that has been shown to improve the neuron health in your brains, improving sugar control. So you want to have less processed foods as much as possible and less added sugars in your diet. If I was to suggest one recipe that pretty much sums up our conversation from my cookbook, it would be the elegant flavanol porridge. It has whole oats in it. It includes berries and it includes cacao, which is a lovely chocolate spice uh, that adds a wealth of aroma to your food. Thanks so much for listening. You can find Dr. Ian at Dr. Ian Panja and loadmedical.co.uk to find out about his amazing project teaching general practitioners and other practitioners how to improve their lifestyle medicine consultations.